Michael Mann presents The Madhouse Effect, Climate Change Denial in the Age of Trump, held on Wednesday 8th of February 2017 in partnership with Sydney Environment Institute and Sydney Ideas, with respondent David Schlossberg and Chair Christopher Wright. Welcome to the University of Sydney and to tonight's Sydney Ideas Public Lecture on The Madhouse Effect, Climate Change Denial in the Age of Trump. My name's Christopher Wright, and I'm a professor of organisation studies and leader of the Balanced Enterprise Research Network here at the University of Sydney Business School. Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research, Within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Okay, so tonight we're extremely lucky to hear from one of the world's leading climate scientists, Professor Michael Mann. Michael is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University and famous not only for his groundbreaking work in analysing the Earth's past climate patterns and record, including the famous hockey stick graph, but also in his long battle against the political denial of climate science in the United States. It's a very great pleasure to welcome Michael to Sydney, and I'd like to especially thank the Sydney Environment Institute for sponsoring his visit to Australia at this critical time in global and Australian climate politics. Of course, the timing of Michael's visit couldn't be better in some senses. Just two weeks ago, as we probably all know and probably fairly sick of being reminded, uh, real estate mogul and reality TV star Donald J. Trump uh, was inaugurated as the 45th President of the United States. Since then, amongst a range of controversial and I would argue sometimes often bizarre announcements, we've seen a rejuvenation of the Republican war on climate science. The former CEO of ExxonMobil has been appointed Secretary of State. The newly appointed head of the EPA is a former Oklahoma Attorney General who sued the EPA. And President Trump has rushed through executive orders to fast-track major carbon developments such as the Keystone XL pipeline and the Dakota Access pipeline. As Michael has argued, uh, within the Trump scene, we're now back in the climate wars. Uh, in which right-wing politicians and their fossil fuel industry sponsors want to delay and defer any serious action in averting what I'd argue is a climate catastrophe. Now, Professor Mann is especially qualified to speak tonight, not only in regard to climate science, but also on the hardball nature of climate politics. As Michael has documented in his best-selling 2012 book, The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, during the 2000s, he experienced firsthand the wrath of the fossil fuel funded climate change denial industry. Like big tobacco before them, fossil fuel advocates have attacked mainstream climate science to confuse the public and policymakers about the reality and threat of human caused climate change. As Michael has outlined, this has involved attacks from conservative politicians and right wing lobby groups, orchestrated campaigns of harassment via mainstream and social media, challenges to job security and career, and even death threats. I look forward to the discussion and the addresses tonight. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Michael Mann. Thank you. 
Thanks uh, very much, Chris, for that kind introduction. And thanks to the University of Sydney, uh, the Sydney Environment uh, Institute, uh, for hosting my visit. And thanks to all of you for coming out tonight. Um, it, it's really uh, great to, uh, to, to speak to this audience uh, about um, this issue of climate change. And it is a, a unique and interesting time uh, to be talking about climate change for reasons that have already been alluded to and reasons that I'll uh, be talking about in my presentation. Now, uh, this book of mine, the, the Madhouse Effect, it came out last fall, uh, and it uh, represents a collaboration between uh, Tom Tolles, who's the editorial cartoonist for the Washington Post, um, and me. And uh, you might ask, you know, how is it that an editorial cartoonist would combine forces with uh, a climate scientist? Um, and the answer is that, you know, as a scientist, I'm used to talking about the issue of climate change in very cerebral terms, in terms of numbers and graphs and data. Uh, but uh, that hasn't quite gotten us out of the madhouse of climate change denial. And uh, I think uh, in part because it's just as important to, to reach people um, through their heart as uh, through their mind. And comedy and satire and, yes, a little bit of ridicule um, really provides a unique uh, vehicle for communicating uh, information uh, in a hostile environment. Um, often, you know, today we find that some of the hardest-hitting commentary uh, takes place in, you know, cartoons by folks like Tom Tolles or on television shows like uh, John Oliver, um, uh, Bill Maher, um, comedy gives you a license to talk about things that are often very difficult to talk about in terms of straight up commentary. So we felt that maybe this was an opportunity to see if we could cut through um, sort of the, uh, the, the, the misinformation and the disinformation about climate change by, by approaching it in a different way and using Tom's cartoons over the years and, and a bunch of new ones that he did for the book to to explore a different way of talking about the issue. Um, as uh, Chris alluded to, you know, we, we published this uh, last fall. Um, we had no idea at, at that time who was going to win the election. And I'll tell you, uh, I can't count the number of colleagues and friends who told me, you know, why are you guys doing a book about climate change denial? I mean, we're past all of that. Uh, we, we've moved on. Um, well, uh, historical events, uh, unfortunately, have proven otherwise, and we are back firmly now in the madhouse. So uh, we are, in fact, dealing uh, with the denial of climate change in the era of uh, Donald J. Trump. Let's first of all start out um, by getting a few things out of the way. Uh, you know, there are those who challenge uh, the um, sort of mainstream understanding of human-caused climate change. Uh, you know, there are critics who uh, you know, question um, uh, the uh, widespread uh, consensus science um, based often on the flimsiest of arguments that don't hold up to the slightest bit of scrutiny. Now, true skepticism, scientific skepticism, is an essential thing. It's what keeps science moving towards a better and better understanding of the way our world works. But one-sided skepticism... Uh, based on the dismissal of uh, robust um, consensus science, again, based on silly arguments. That's not skepticism. That's uh, contrarianism or denial. 
And while some of the climate change critics uh, would like to fashion themselves as modern-day Galileos railing against the scientific establishment, uh, they're really just cranks, in large part, dressed up like Galileo. The basics, not that hard to understand. You put CO2 into the atmosphere, you warm up the planet, uh, the scientific, uh, the, the fundamental scientific tenets behind uh, climate change and global warming have been known for nearly two centuries. They go back to Joseph Fourier in the early uh, 19th century who understood that there was a greenhouse effect. And yes, it's true, we uh, will never be 100% certain about anything in science. Uh, that's true about climate change, it's true about the theory of gravity. But there's about as widespread a consensus when it comes to human-caused climate change now as there is about the theory of gravity. Now, sometimes uh, you encounter various arguments um, like, uh, you know, well, you know, when it comes to the, the impacts of climate change, um, you know, there are certain areas uh, at sort of the forefront of the research where scientists are still debating the precise connections, and that involves things like the, the relationship between climate change and tornadoes and hurricanes. And one of the uh, statements you often hear um, when there's an unprecedented uh, weather event, um, you'll hear the critics say, well, you know, you can't prove that this event was made worse by climate change. Um, it, it could have happened uh, naturally. And I liken that in, in, in the, the U.S., of course, uh, we, uh, baseball is uh, one of our uh, most loved sports. Um, and uh, there has been a scandal um, in the past where baseball players have taken steroids to increase their strength and uh, have broken the record for the number of home runs that they hit in that season uh, only to... Uh, have those uh, records invalidated because it was discovered uh, that they had been taking steroids. And, you know, I suppose they could make the argument that um, you couldn't prove that any one of those home runs that they hit that season was caused by the steroids. Well, that's true, but it's irrelevant. The fact that they hit so many home runs uh, was certainly due to the steroids. And the climate, essentially climate change, is sort of putting our weather on steroids. And it isn't a coincidence uh, that you know, we've had the strongest hurricane measured by peak wind speed uh, ever in the northern hemisphere within the last year and a half. And we've had the strongest landfalling hurricane ever measured here in the southern hemisphere within the last year and a half. I don't think that's coincidence. Why should we care? Well, you know, we've got polar bears uh, up in our pole, and you folks have penguins down at your pole. Um, and often, you know, I'll, I'll be frank, you know, I, I show the polar bear on the ice floe here um, in all of my presentations because it's the law. If you give a talk about climate change, you have to show a polar bear or a penguin uh, stranded on an ice floe. Uh, but it's so much more. It's about the beauty and wonder of our world and not leaving behind a degraded planet for our children and grandchildren where these magnificent creatures uh, can no longer live. Uh, but fundamentally, um, well, and, you know, also relevant uh, here is you know, the demise of coral reefs. Um, some of you may have seen this. Uh, there was an epitaph written for the Great Barrier Reef it was sort of tongue-in-cheek a few months ago because the, the Great Barrier Reef isn't literally dead yet, but we are on a path now 
because of the effects of uh, ocean uh, warming and coral bleaching and ocean acidification due to increasing CO2 levels, um, where scientists tell us we will see the demise of this magnificent uh, entity, the Great Barrier Reef, uh, within a matter of decades if we don't change course. Uh, so again, is that the sort of world we want to leave behind for our children and grandchildren? Um, and it isn't just about the beauty and wonder of the world, it's about the fact that we have a growing global population competing for less food, less water, and less land um, in, in a world where we allow climate change to continue. Uh, that would reflect a, a fundamental challenge for human civilization. Um, and the, the impacts of climate change really are no longer subtle. We're seeing them uh, play out in real time. But despite that, despite how clear it is, not just that climate change is happening and that it's due to human activity, but it's having an adverse impact uh, on our daily lives, despite that, there does continue to be a denial of climate change. Um, uh, how many people have heard the argument that there's a pause in global warming, that global warming has stopped? Um, it's a very widespread claim, and it's rather odd because 2014 was the warmest year on record until 2015, which was the warmest year on record, until 2016, which was the warmest year on record. So it doesn't sound like global warming has stopped, does it? Um, the only pause, uh, arguably, is in us taking the actions uh, necessary to do something about it. January, by the way, as if to welcome me to Sydney, I arrived to 38 degrees Celsius temperatures um, last weekend. Um, and of course, January was the hottest uh, month ever recorded here in Sydney. Again, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. We're seeing them play out in real time. So, all right, the critics will say, all right, well, maybe there isn't a pause after all. They'll concede that. But, uh, all right, but temperatures change naturally. Um, and it's true, temperatures change naturally. You have El Ninos come and go. Um, Stovetop temperatures change naturally. Those frogs have nothing to worry about. Um, uh, it's an absurd argument, and, and scientists can actually look at this rigorously because we can uh, take into account the natural factors like volcanoes and small changes in solar output that impact the climate, and we can put those into the climate models and see what happens, and then we can add the effect of human beings, increase greenhouse gas concentrations into the models. And when you just include the natural factors, uh, the models say that the planet should have actually cooled slightly in recent decades. Natural factors can't explain the warming we've seen. Only the increased concentration of greenhouse gases from human activity can actually explain the warming that we've seen. Well, then the next argument is, okay, well, maybe it is warming. Um, maybe it's not entirely natural, but uh, it's self-correcting. It'll just correct itself. And unless you mean by self-correcting that sea level rises to the point where all of our coal-fired power plants are submerged, um, uh, the climate is in no sense self-correcting. We can get global temperatures back up to Cretaceous levels um, if we burn all of the available fossil fuels. Now, the Cretaceous happened naturally over uh, time scales of you know, tens, literally 100 million years. Uh, these gases built up in the atmosphere, and then they slowly decreased. 
Um, so over the last 100 million years, all that CO2 in the atmosphere that made the Cretaceous so warm uh, eventually got buried beneath the surface of the Earth. What we're doing is we are unburying all that carbon, but not on a time scale of 100 million years. We're doing it on a time scale of 100 years, a million times faster. And there's simply no evidence that uh, life, including us, can adapt to rates of change that great. Well, the next argument is, well, all right, um, yeah, maybe it isn't self-correcting, but it'll be good for us, right? Melting ice sheets lift all boats, after all. Um, and no, it won't be good for us. Uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change um, has rigorously uh, studied, based on thousands of, of peer-reviewed articles, um, the, the various impacts of climate change and uh, how they are likely to play out as we continue to warm the globe. And it's quite clear that if we warm the globe more than about 2 degrees Celsius, um, we're already more than one degree Celsius. We've got another half a degree Celsius already in the pipeline as the globe warms up in response to the CO2 we've already put up into the atmosphere. So we don't have a lot of wiggle room if we're going to avoid two degrees Celsius. And if we do cross two degrees Celsius, that's really where we start to see negative impacts across the board, whether we're talking about water, food, health, national security, our economy. Um, it's not going to be good for us. And finally, the sort of denialist canon, once, you know, we've conceded that, well, no, it won't be good for us either, um, the argument is, well, you know what, I'm sorry, but it, it, it took so much time debating this that, you know, it's too late. It's too late to actually do anything now, so I guess we'll just have to give up. And fortunately, that isn't true either. There absolutely is still time uh, to make the changes necessary to avoid uh, crossing into truly dangerous and irreversible climate change. But there isn't a whole lot of time, so there is uh, an urgency unlike we've ever seen before in acting. All right, so uh, as we've seen, there is this um, denial of climate change that's widespread despite the overwhelming degree of the scientific consensus. And it's not just by chance, it's not just happenstance that, that climate change denialism is particularly widespread in countries that have an entrenched fossil fuel industry, like the United States, like Australia. Um, and there has been an effort uh, for you know, decades now. Fossil fuel interests have literally spent millions and millions of US or Australian dollars um, on a massive misinformation campaign intended to confuse the public and policymakers about the reality and threat of climate change, much like the tobacco industry spent millions of dollars trying to fool the public and policymakers about the dangers of their product. Um, some of the same scientist advocates who are being paid by the fossil fuel industry today to deny climate change were being paid by tobacco interests decades ago to deny the threat of cigarettes and tobacco products. Um, so there's this war on climate science, and uh, undoubtedly, until like the last Japanese soldier still fighting World War II, um, discovered only <laughs> years ago, as long as there are fossil fuels uh, to burn, uh, we will likely see industry-funded uh, climate change denial. Um, but it will become irrelevant and marginalized. We will move on. We will solve this problem. Uh, the question is, uh, how much delay are we willing to allow in the meantime? So climate change and denialism, there is a certain amount of hypocrisy that is encountered in the campaign to attack the science and to 
deny the reality of climate change. And I want to talk about one particular example. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, uh, a, um, was the former Attorney General of Virginia, um, a, um, a Roman Catholic of Italian uh, uh, ancestry, um, a, a Tea Party, uh, ultra-conservative, um, uh, you know, a, a uniquely uh, American sort of uh, politician, of course. Um, and so Ken Cuccinelli, a number of years ago, Attorney General of uh, Virginia, um, attempted to subpoena all of my personal emails from the time I was at the University of Virginia um, based on the fact that he was using what's known as a civil investigative demand, a civil subpoena that is available to the Attorney General to ferret out state waste and fraud. And since Ken Cuccinelli considered the science of climate change to be fraudulent, um, and since I had been engaged in research on the science of climate change while I had been at the University of Virginia, he saw this as a perfectly appropriate um, uh, use of uh, the civil subpoena. Uh, it was heavily criticized at the time by the Washington Post, uh, wrote no less than five editorials blasting Ken Cuccinelli and his witch hunt against uh, the University of Virginia and me. Um, the editorial, uh, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonist uh, Tom Tolles, uh, my co-author uh, at the time, um, actually weighed in on this matter not once but twice. And I have to say I do, I do sort of uh, like that <laughs> cartoon. I, poor Galileo uh, Cuccinelli wants his emails as well. And uh, I don't mind being compared to Galileo, I guess. Uh, well, the civil uh, subpoena was rejected by the, the court um, on a technicality, really. Um, in, in his 40-page filing to the court, uh, Mr. Cuccinelli had forgotten to provide evidence of wrongdoing uh, on my part. So uh, the court uh, threw it out. Uh, of course, he appealed to the uh, state Supreme Court, the highest uh, court in, in the state, um, that later uh, ruled against him with prejudice, um, meaning you know they really don't want to ever see an attorney general come back to the court with something like this again. So we prevailed in this in this battle. Um, Ken Cuccinelli ended up uh, running for governor of Virginia uh, a few years ago. Uh, I actively campaigned uh, with his opponent uh, Terry McAuliffe, who was victorious. Um, in fact, I actually introduced Bill Clinton at that particular rally. Um, and uh, ended up writing this book with Tom Tolles, as I mentioned. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, well, he's now, um, I'm not making this up, um, he is now uh, working uh, on an oyster farm on an island, uh, Tangier Island, that is in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, neighboring Virginia. It's an island that is slowly succumbing to the effects of global sea level rise. Um, and, you know, you just can't make this stuff up. Um, there really is a, a level of hypocrisy when it comes to the denial of climate change. It's unlike anything else we see. Um, but, you know, Ken Cuccinelli tried to sue us for our emails. A Koch Brothers-funded front group called the Competitive Enterprise Institute tried to sue us for exactly the same emails. They were rejected by the court, including the Supreme Court of Virginia. Um, but uh, they are now a Competitive Enterprise Institute, um, now um, had, has had a major role in uh, determining who will run our uh, EPA under the Trump administration. Um, so 
the uh, fox is sort of uh, fox is in the hen house now when it comes to the attacks on climate change in this new environment that we're in. So some of the critics um, will say, you know, I, I accept that climate change is um, happening, and, and humans probably have some role. I, I don't doubt that. Um, uh, but they'll engage in what I call the softer, gentler, the kinder, gentler form of climate change denialism to say, but you know what, the best way to solve this problem is through some engineering uh, approach, um, some massive planetary intervention with our climate that, uh, if we get really lucky, um, uh, might offset uh, the effects of global sea level rise. Uh, and many of these um, schemes are the stuff of science fiction, seemingly, uh, shooting particles into the stratosphere to block out some of the sunlight, dumping iron into the oceans to try to fertilize algae to take more CO2 out of the atmosphere. Um, and with just about every one of these schemes, um, when we look at them in detail and we look at the possible consequences, we, we see the uh, principle of unintended consequences. We could potentially end up much worse than we had started out if we engage in these um, massive interventions. Uh, one of the supporters of this approach, uh, Rex Tillerson's view of climate change, is just an engineering problem. Um, and I always find it amazing when you talk to folks like Rex Tillerson, they have this amazing faith um, and optimism in our ability to engage in a massive planetary engineering project and tamper with the global Earth system and it'll all work out. Um, but you ask them, well, what if we instead took um, existing renewable energy technology and incentivized it and scaled it up? It's like, oh, there's no way you could ever do that. It's just not possible. Um, so there, there is this um, odd sort of uh, asymmetry in their optimism. Um, it's probably not the right solution. Um, the right solution is to stem this problem um, at its source. And it's not to wish for a climate policy. It's to actually do something um, here in Australia as well as where I live in the United States. And there are some reasons for optimism, even in the era of Trump. Um, let's, let's be sh clear. There are still some real reasons for optimism that not only um, can we turn the corner, we're already starting to turn the corner. Uh, the Paris summit last year, uh, 200 nations, nearly 200 nations from around the world um, made uh, uh, significant commitments to lowering their carbon emissions. And if you total up uh, all of the commitments that were made in Paris, uh, it's enough not to solve the problem. It doesn't get us below two degrees Celsius warming, which many, as I alluded to earlier, would describe as, as really the dangerous level, the truly dangerous and irreversible level of warming. Um, it doesn't get us there, but it does get us about halfway there from where we're currently headed towards more than five degrees Celsius warming by the end of the century, which would truly be catastrophic. So what it tells us is Paris got us starting to move in the right direction. It doesn't get us to the finish line, but it puts us on a path. It puts us on a path um, where um, we uh, can see stabilizing uh, greenhouse gas concentrations below dangerous levels. But it's going to require uh, continued effort. Um, after Trump was elected and he threatened that he might uh, pull out of the Paris Accord, uh, the rest of the countries of the world got together in Switzerland to affirm uh, 
their commitment to making good on uh, the Paris Accord. Uh, and uh, China, in fact, has said, which is the largest emitter, the US and China are the two largest emitters of carbon on the planet. China has said, well, you know what? We'll do even more. <laughs> the US is, as some people thought when the US, um, when Trump threatened uh, to withdraw support for uh, the Paris Accord, that the Chinese would say, ah, well, okay, if they're pulling out, we're pulling out. That's not what they said. They said, we're going to work even harder. And they're already decommissioning coal-fired power plants now in China. Not only aren't they building new ones, they're decommissioning existing coal-fired power plants. And they are investing far more in renewable energy technology than any other country on the planet. Reason for optimism. Um, The Pope, the encyclical... Uh, a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, which sort of reframed the issue of climate change in, in, in the terms that many of us feel it should always have been framed, because we talk about it so much in terms of science and policy and politics and economics. But more than anything else, acting on climate change is a matter of ethics. It's a matter of uh, not leaving behind a degraded planet for our children and grandchildren. And whether you come at it from a religious standpoint or um, just sort of an ethical um, sort of standpoint, uh, there's no doubt that uh, the papal encyclical really helped to draw attention to the urgency of action and to reframe this issue where it needs to be framed in terms of our obligation not to ruin the planet for our children and grandchildren. But we did then get Trump, um, and he's, you know, He's threatened to build a wall, and we know that he has built a wall, uh, shielding himself from the evidence of human-caused climate change. And yes, we will all pay for it. Uh, So the challenge is obviously greater. And as Chris alluded to, uh, his cabinet is filled uh, with um, individuals who have connections with the fossil fuel industry and the Koch brothers and, and, and deny the reality of climate change and have an antipathy towards um, efforts to do something about climate change. Uh, so the challenge is, is going to be greater. Without uh, the U.S. Um, participating as a committed partner in, in global uh, efforts to reduce carbon emissions, Um, The rest of the world is going to have to do more. Um, We're seeing in the U.S., we're seeing states step up. Uh, My good friend uh, Jerry Brown, the governor of California, who I've advised on climate change before, after he heard that uh, Trump was threatening to uh, take down the climate satellites, um, uh, Jerry Brown, in his inimitable uh, way, said, well, we'll put up our own damn satellites. And Jerry Brown, the state of California, are uh, committed um, to major reductions in carbon emissions. California is, I think, the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, just that one state. The entire West Coast is committed to putting a price on carbon and to incentivize renewable energy. The New England states are committed to that. So we're seeing, in the absence of leadership at the national level now um, in the US, we are seeing ground-up leadership. And there's every reason to believe that we will make substantial progress um, in the years ahead in the U.S. as we continue to transition towards renewable energy, even in the absence of support um, at the presidential level. Well, denial isn't uh, isolated. It isn't limited just uh, to uh, the U.S. Uh, Of course, uh, we've seen that here in Australia as well, a very similar story. Um, Currently... uh, Prime Minister uh, arguing for a clean coal power. Um, if it existed, I would be all for it. Um, 
there is no clean coal uh, today in the sense that we're able to keep the carbon emissions from entering into the atmosphere. Um, and in fact, if coal-fired power plants uh, were required to implement uh, capture and sequestration, uh, that would price them completely out of the market. If you're a free market energy economist, um, then you shouldn't be arguing the case for coal because they're just not competitive without major subsidies. They're not competitive against the increasingly efficient renewable energy that's coming on the market. This isn't just an academic debate. Uh, it isn't just another sort of um, fun, uh, playful political debate. Um, the earth literally does uh, hang in the balance. Um, and here in Australia, as, as well as back in the United States, if we want to preserve this planet for our children and grandchildren, we have to do everything we possibly can to hold our policymakers accountable and to make sure they act to take the steps necessary to limit our carbon emissions below levels that will fundamentally degrade the planet for future generations. And there's still time to do it. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Thank you. Thanks very much, Michael. That was marvellous. Um, I would now like to uh, introduce Professor David Schlossberg uh, to provide a short response to, to Michael's address. Uh, David is Professor of Environmental Politics here at the University of Sydney uh, and co-director of the Sydney Environment Institute, which is hosting Michael's uh, visit to Australia. Uh, David's research focuses on issues of climate and environmental justice, uh, and in particular, SEI and his research are now uh, looking also at the whole issue of adapting to climate change and its social, uh, environmental and political consequences. Thanks very much, David. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks also uh, to Michael Mann uh, for coming and spending some time with us. Uh, thanks to Michelle, wherever she is, uh, and the staff of SEI for um, their support. And thanks to everyone for coming. Uh, it's quite a full room. So um, before getting to questions, uh, I guess I'm up here because um, I have this really odd perspective of uh, being an American, as you can hear, but also um, being an Australian, I'm a, a dual citizen, and so I am subject to bad governance twice as much uh, <laughs> as any of you. Um, and so um, I just wanted to lay out, uh, a, a, I guess, three points um, where I see some similarities and differences uh, in my experience uh, between the U.S. Uh, and, and Australia. So in Australia, as much as in the U.S., the denialists and the distortionists have undermined public knowledge, public policy, uh, the very value of the environment. So, and just as in the US, Australia's climate policy uh, is in fact based on alternative facts, on fake news, on outright lies, on industry written talking points, uh, on bullshit. <laughs> and um, actually at that point I should say, um, one of the things I'm really happy about with the University of Sydney is the University of Sydney just um, funded a post-truth study uh, research group so we actually, and I'm part of that, and uh, environmental policy will be a part of that. So the University of Sydney actually is funding bullshit detection. <laughs> no, I'm just, I just have a shout out to, uh, uh, to the university for doing that. From 
the carbon industry capture of the two parties here um, to the Abbott and Turnbull government parroting uh, industry talking points to coal industry lobbyists as actual advisors to the government um, to the idiotic conspiracy and things go dark. Um, mm -hmm. The idiotic conspiracy at that point, it makes sense, right? The conspiracy theories uh, of Malcolm Roberts um, and lone wolf uh, Trump wannabe Cory Bernardi um, who actually has been paid and supported uh, and advised um, by the US-based denial machine, um, the madhouse effect is in full effect um, in Australia. And I think the key question um, for Michael, as much as for the researchers at the Sydney Environment Institute, is how we counter the full force of the denial machine and actually have some science-based policies, some justice-oriented policies, some fact-based policy and direct opposition to that um, denial machine. So three basic points. And tell me if I'm wrong about this first one, but this is the first thing that I sort of came to understand as I moved or went after I moved um, to Australia. So I quickly discovered what I think is a key difference between the political cultures uh, of the two countries. So as much as the, de the denialists have undermined Australian environmental policy, I don't think they've been as successful here yet, I should say, at undermining a deep-seated Australian respect for common good, for science, um, for knowledge-based policy and expertise. And like I said, maybe there are some in the room who try to prove me wrong. So I left the US in 2011. I was living in Arizona at the time. I had experienced the full weight of the racism, the white nationalism, the anti-intellectual, anti-education, anti-fact atmosphere that has since gone national. And I told people that I left Arizona because it became anti-enlightenment. And people thought, they didn't really know what to think, they just thought that was kind of a funny, it was, it was a joke, but people aren't laughing at it anymore because this actually has happened um, more broadly in the US. But shortly after I arrived here, I remember vividly Tony Abbott attacking the work of economist uh, Ross Garneau. Right? Um, Abbott attacked Garneau's report, which simply pointed out the cost of climate inaction and the viability of putting a price on, car on carbon. He attacked it as anti-democratic. And then he doubled down and dismissed not just Garneau, but the entire field uh, of um, Australian uh, economists. Other denialists, of course, took this as license uh, and ripped into Garneau and others as fascists, and um, the game went up from there. Um, this is stuff that Michael is well familiar with. But what was surprising to me at that point as this new transplant is that the public, a large portion of the public, I should say, seemed appalled by Abbott's trashing of an academic, and there was a backlash. The attack wasn't just on the carbon price, on a policy recommendation, but on science and knowledge uh, as it fed policy. And then there was a chief scientist on TV defending the academy, and that's when I learned that Australia actually has a chief scientist and the media actually listened to it. We didn't have this kind of thing in Arizona. Right? Um, and I think Abbott wound up backing down and apologizing, but that's not really the point, right? The point is that there seems to me to be a stronger cultural norm here that supports science, that respects expertise, that understands that real knowledge um, should and can be used to inform good policy in the public interest. And that continues, and there are a number of examples uh, of that when the government fired all the climate scientists at CSIRO, for example, there was a big backlash and the government had to step back a little bit. When the government wanted to support 
Again, the idiocy of someone like Bjorn Lomborg, who's a virtual vortex of post-truth. Um, <laughs> there was a huge outcry, not just from the university sector, from, but from the public as well. And even though they dumped $400,000 on him, which still just gets me um, to this day, they couldn't import him, they couldn't plug him into any Australian university um, because of the backlash. As Michael says, it's not just about the science. The main issue is the cultural understanding and respect for the role of science in informing political decisions. And again, as a new Australian, as a new transplant, um, um, from a place where academics are routinely accused of brainwashing youth to be America-hating communists, this is what my father-in-law truly thinks I do, um, I've been impressed and proud um, of the public culture that's more respectful of reason knowledge and it's used for the public good here. So that's reason for hope here. And again, tell me if I'm wrong. My second point isn't as positive. The problem here, I think, isn't so much a culture turning against the Enlightenment, um, but it's the direct political power and influence of the carbon industry. Um, there isn't necessarily this mediating factor. They don't need this shift uh, in the public because they own uh, the government. I think this is most evident not just in the poor emissions and climate policies, um, but the fact that under the influence of the carbon industry, the Australian government is hell-bent on sabotaging an entire industrial sector. And for me, honestly, the sabotage of the renewables industry here in Australia, an all-out attack on one of the most promising industries on the planet, is nothing less than treasonous. We have a set of politicians <clears throat> under the influence of a dying industry, undermining one of the most promising areas of its own economy for the sole benefit of the carbon diggers at the expense of the rest of Australia, the next generation, uh, and of the planet. And the justification for that is all based on bullshit, right? It's straight from the PR of the carbon industry, energy security, energy poverty, clean coal, it's all crap. We know it, and they know it. It's just PR. But again, okay, that's harsh. <laughs> but even there, I do think there's some hope. We've seen over the last few years here an incredible coalition grow, one focused on the end of carbon mining, on protecting communities, on creating real jobs, on supporting the renewables industry. And we see this in the once, I mean, really unthinkable coalition of farmers and aboriginal communities fighting new mines, new attacks on sacred and fertile land uh, and water. We've seen that in household investment in rooftop solar. And once the feed-in tariffs are gone, these people are going to be buying batteries and supporting the industry that way. As hard as the government resists, renewables are growing. The public supports it. Even the conservatives support it. Uh, and this industry will be the innovator, the job creator, the future of the energy system in this country. That's a movement. That's a transformation that won't falter in the face of bullshit. Third point, and one that's crucial to make, and I'm sorry because this is the most dire one, all of this talk about the science, about the power of the denialist machine, about post-truth, the sabotage of renewables, it's all about one side of the climate issue. It's about mitigation. The other side, frankly, is crucial especially to us here in Australia. And that's how we adapt to the climate change that the denialist machine has already baked into our future. This nice, stable time of the last 10,000 years 
where we've evolved, built our cities, our infrastructure, our supply chains, the expectations of our everyday lives, it's over. Right? Climate change means change. This is happening. It's happening here. Adaptation is the new battle, and it has to be fair adaptation. It's got to be just adaptation. We know who benefits from denialism and the sabotage of renewables. It's pretty straightforward on the other side. Who's going to be harmed? Who's already being harmed um, if we don't plan for coming change? We know who dies in heat waves and in storms. The poor, the elderly, those who live alone, those without resources. So this is happening. Right? The, the Rockefeller-funded Resilient Sydney Project found that the number one regional stress in the Sydney region is going to be to health services in the face of heat waves. This is our number one stress. If we don't address that, vulnerable people will continue to die right here every time it heats up, like this weekend. So Australia needs to face to adaptation planning, face up to adaptation planning on a large scale. And again, I'm proud to be part of an institution, the Sydney Environment Institute, the, the University of Sydney, where this matters, where we have a huge focus on the health and social impacts of climate change and on adaptation. Um, so, for example, with the City of Sydney and Resilient Sydney, we've got a new project uh, going um, to interview people to deal, to, to try and understand the community experience of shock events so that we can more clearly understand the complexity of those events and respond uh, in the policy process. So our focus is not just calling out bullshit, um, but ways of finding ways of addressing the very real impacts of denialist policy and adapting and doing that in a fair and just way. And that's crucial work. So that's enough for me, at least two questions. So yes, Australia has industry-led denialists creating a madhouse effect. But honestly, honestly, as a, as a new Australian, I think we're a bit better placed here, that we can use the broad political culture of respect for science and of the fair go to resist bullshit, to pull off an energy transformation, adapt fairly uh, and justly to the inevitable changes that we have to face. Thank you.